Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, welcome back everybody um, for another podcast of the Latter-day Peace Studies Come Follow Me. Um, We are getting into the story of Abraham this week. So this includes the chapters of Genesis 12 through 17. So it's not the full Abraham story, but it's kind of the first part. And then we're going to also talk about the book of Abraham, chapters 1 and 2. Now, uh, we mentioned beforehand, Christopher, that we were a little disappointed in how they split this up in the reading because we end up talking about Abraham chapters 1 and 2 after we talked about 3, 4, and 5. And so it kind of like throws 3 out of context but we so we might mention that a little bit um, on a part that we're we're going to talk about just with the concept of of Abraham and and his um, astronomy or, or cosmology, so to speak. Um, we might bring that in. But um, as we get into the story of Abraham, this is uh, a a journey, like literally a journey story, right? But really, what's going on here is this faith journey of Abraham. Um, he's coming to know God um, better. He's coming to understand what it means to make a covenant with God. And he's coming to understand what his potential and responsibilities are in the world. Well put. And how that comes about is is a series of, of some bizarre things that happen. Um, at least from our sort of modern viewpoint, they might be seen as that. Um, the way that it's the narrative goes in the Bible focuses on a, a it in a slightly different way than how the Book of Abraham approaches it, which is which makes total sense because the Book of Abraham, written from the perspective of Joseph Smith, in the concepts and ideas that he was developing theologically at the time in 1835 and then and then you know that's when he first got the papyrus i think but they actually wasn't published until years later i think but the the concepts that he was developing at that time theologically were very much centered in this idea of priesthood and so actually the story of abraham we get out of uh abraham one and two um really focuses around this uh, thread of of priesthood and what role that plays in Abraham's life, but um, it's really kind of just a mode and um, a a way of expressing the same types of ideas that we see in the Bible story, just without that that word um, priesthood. Although we still get concepts like being a high priest and and Melchizedek comes in here and so forth. So so there's definitely some some ties there. You just see the specific focus of Joseph Smith in the book of Abraham. Yeah, so before we go into the conversation, Ben, I just have to mention the elephant in the room. You don't sound great, and neither do I. <laughs> right. And yet the show must go on. Right. COVID still is has uh, its mark upon our voices. 
<laughs> Indeed. So, yeah, that's right. We're going to be... I, I clear my throat all the time, but um, I might do it a little more often during this one. <laughs> Same here. So... One of the most obvious things when we start this story of, of Abraham, at least coming at it from the Bible, is to notice that his name isn't Abraham yet, right? It's Abram. Um, and there's, there's a slightly different meaning. You know, the Lord gives him the name Abraham later. Abram meaning exalted father or, or high father. And the, the connotation there is that Abraham is um, the heir of the patriarchal line um so through shem so shem being the one that was the heir of noah and noah being you know the heir of of the the fathers before him all the way back to adam so abraham sees himself as this successor this heir of this patriarchal order that we might how we might see that but but it's really expressed this way in the bible as well and so his name reflects his respect for his genealogy, his lineage, who he sees himself as. This comes out um, in in the mode and manner and, and terminology in the book of Abraham as the concept of priesthood. So that's constantly referred back to. But uh, Abram, or, or then later Abraham, still sees himself as the, the inheritor of this tradition. Um, and and I, I should go back and say it's it's not necessarily that Abraham is seeing himself this way. It's it's that whoever wrote this story in the book of Genesis, which we've got actually probably multiple authors put this together, they see Abraham this way. And so the way that this story is constructed, because remember this is this is the these are the foundational myths, so to speak, right? And and we don't mean by that by not true stories. We just mean um, stories that that um, derive a cultural meaning for a people. Um, these are the foundational myths of the Israelite people, of the Hebrew people. And so um, for, for them to, to think of Abraham in this way as the inheritor of this tradition makes you know, a lot of sense when you, when you are crafting a story about how all of this comes about. Yeah, just like when we started talking about the Old Testament, I said that the story doesn't really start with the creation. It really starts in slavery in Egypt. And by the way, we'll, we'll be talking about that yeah. uh, today too, right? That, and then to explain how things became the way they are such that we are in slavery in Egypt, now we go back to in the beginning. Here in the same way, even though we think of Adam as the first prophet, and this is true in the Islamic tradition too, Adam is the first prophet, yet... Abraham is the first one who shows up in the prophetic pattern. And again, over in the Islamic tradition, he's the one of the foremost important prophets. It starts with Abraham, then Moses, then Jesus, and then Muhammad. Yeah. And he's a friend of God. Christopher, um, why don't you talk for just a second about why would it why in this context would you bring up I mean, you're an Islamic scholar, but why do you think in particular we want to bring up the Islamic tradition or or commentary or addition that we might be able to contribute to this? Sure. Yeah. So first of all, it's I'm always going to think in terms of of what I know from the Quran that's that's related. Right. These are there's an intertextuality between the Bible and the Quran. They're in conversation with with each other. And in fact, there's something that's in the Quran that that re, that relates to something you just said, Ben, uh, a minute earlier, which is the idea that the the Quran actually says 
Look, why do you think Abraham is a, a Jew or a Christian? The story of Abraham is written much later than Abraham. This is in the Quran. It's saying this. Abraham himself comes much earlier than the writings that we have about Abraham. And so Abraham is this proto-monotheist, is how he's seen in the Islamic tradition. And that's very much the way he shows up in the biblical story. A second reason is, as mentioned in last week's episode, the church has recently put out a pamphlet on Islam because as Elder Bednar and Elders Bednar and Gong mentioned at a recent uh, conference on Islam at BYU, when they announced the pamphlet was coming, it is important to, uh, that Latter-day Saints get to know Muslims and understand Islam. A third reason is because the account in the Quran looks to me a lot closer to the account in the Pearl of Great Price than it does to the Bible. So we have the biblical story, and that's most familiar uh, in all three Abrahamic religions, right? So you have that Abraham is the father of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, to give you know to mention them in chronological order, and and yet the the narratives that we have that come from that are let's say extra canonical to us as Latter Day Saints, such as that of the Quran. And then, of course, it's not extra-canonical for us as Latter-day Saints, but also, again, the, the similarities that I see with the Pearl of Great Price narrative on Abraham. And there's also hinted at, at least in the Quran, there's, it's hinted at that, there, that we should understand the, the intertextuality, again, between these narratives, at least the Quranic one in this case, and the Apocalypse of Abraham, which is another extra-canonical text mm -hmm. having to do with Abraham, because Abraham is given as an example, both uh, alongside Lot and Noah, in the same way that the Bible uses Lot and Noah as examples of cases in which God has protected someone while those around him were not necessarily protected. Abraham shows up in the same way in the Quran. They're, they're all three mentioned in that way. And this seems strange if you only have the biblical account of Abraham because there is no story like the stories of Lot and Noah uh, like there is of for Abraham, I mean. Whereas in the apocalypse of Abraham, there is. And so again, we can see intertextuality between the Bible, the Quran, and other texts such as the extra-canonical apocalypse of Abraham. You know, you mentioned something, Christopher, that made me think so there's this motif of God protecting someone while others around them are not, right? And and this actually shows up again for Moses, right? Because all the right. Pharaoh kills all the kids and Moses is saved by putting him in the thing. And then this shows up for Jesus, right? You know, they go into Egypt and all the, the kids are killed. So that that's a that's a returning motif. And, you know, in the LDS tradition, but but also in the broader Christian tradition, if we take like the the Christian hermeneutic here, we could say, oh, well, these are all types of Christ, right? These are all foreshadowing um, the the archetype of, of Christ, where there is some protection while all the others, you know, around destroyed, which which is actually an inversion of the of the broader Christian narrative, because what it is is Christ is the one who's not protected so that all others would be saved. Right? That's interesting, yeah. Very, very interesting you know, inversion of that, that idea. So uh, the beginning of this story of, of Abraham is that he's, he's somewhere that he's doesn't belong, 
right? Which is which is odd because he does belong there. It's his father's house, right? If if you belong anywhere, you belong in your father's house, right? But Abraham doesn't belong there, or Abram doesn't belong there, and um, it doesn't tell us exactly a lot about it um, in the in the Bible. You know, we don't get exactly why uh, God tells Abram to leave. Um, the story in the Pearl of Great Price that we get is that um, Abraham's father is a pagan and he's violent and and he's, you know, it's not a safe place for Abraham to be, you know, physically. So, And that's one of the parallels with, with the Quran is that the Quran tells us that the reason Abraham leaves his father is because his father is a polytheist and Abraham, as the as the story of Abraham goes, as the narrative goes, is a proto monotheist. Yeah. Yeah. So here in the in the Bible story, though we have we have God telling Abraham to leave, right? To leave his country, his kindred, and his father's house, to go out into the wilderness, so to speak, right? This is the call to adventure. This is the the hero's journey call to adventure. Leave this, go out into the wilderness. In the I'm still contrasting these two accounts because it's it, the the contrast of them is actually really interesting because in the Pearl Great Price narrative, it's not God explicitly telling Abraham to leave. It's Abraham saying, I wanted something more. I didn't feel safe here. I felt like I needed to get out. You know, he he was he is trying to seek the blessings of the father, she says, right? Like I needed to get away from this place because it wasn't fostering my spiritual development. <laughs> yeah. Can I just point out, you know, we have these different versions of the same story mm -hmm. even again when we when we end this discussion if we do talk about uh, chapter three of the book of abraham we'll we'll see in comparison with the quran a different version of the same story this reminds me of genesis one and two mm. right you have two different versions of the same story and so again that's what that's another reason why i bring up extra canonical texts whether extra canonical for us or for all of us uh, abrahamic religions well, this is evidence of the stories being first oral traditions, right? So they were passed down as oral traditions and then recorded by people with slightly different details in different ways, maybe because certain things were emphasized or told or related in a certain way as a quote-unquote Joseph Smith type translation, right? Because and when the story is told, you, you translate it to your family, you translate it to your kids, you translate it to your family culture and emphasizing the things, you know, bringing in themes that are most important for you to teach in that moment. So over time, you end up with these these different um, versions of the story, where uh, when you start comparing them, actually bring out some some very interesting things um, about you know, because because I'll take this example, you know, whether the Lord explicitly tells Abraham to get out, or whether Abraham feels this desire hunger, thirst for righteousness and get out. That's actually the same thing, right? Yeah, especially in antiquity when God is doing everything, right? Yeah. Well, it's just very interesting to to look at it in the two different ways and then realize that they aren't so different. It's just a different kind yeah. of perspective. So I, I like that comparison there. The The whole arc of the story of Abraham here, it's been pointed out, has a chiasmic structure um, so this is uh, something where, where basically it's a mirror, you know, it, it goes 
like a V, you know, it goes one way and then returns back the other way. Um, and, and when it's coming back the other way, all of the same events are repeated, but in reverse order. And so this is, this is an interesting, um, observation. People have written books about this. There's a whole book about the chiasmic structure of the Abraham story, um, going in this pattern very common um, rhetoric, literary device of, of ancient peoples, particularly Hebrew writing tradition. Yeah, and of course, the, the center of this chiasmus is the point of emphasis, right? Not the beginning, not yeah. the end, right. the center. The, the, the climax. Middle. It's actually, this is the That's climax, right. is the, um, the, the heart of it. And uh, one of and the- So we'll point that out. Yeah, so like in the, in the Latter-day Saint tradition- the, one of the most famous chiasmic structures that we talk about is Alma chapter 36. And the heart of that is when Alma um, turns to Christ and calls upon his name, right? And then you have the whole reverse order of that stuff. In this story, and we'll get to it, is, is a part that I wouldn't have expected as the, as the heart of that, as the climax, as the crux. And it's telling, Ben. It really is telling, and I think it can help us read the Bible. It reminds me of, of the book of Rob Bell, Jesus Wants to Save Christians. Mm. I think I think he saw this and he pointed it out. Even though I, when I say that he doesn't he doesn't mention it. I don't think he mentions it, but it shows up. It shows up as the theme of the whole Bible. So not just of the story of Abraham, and not just of the story of Exodus, because this is in some sense. A prefiguration of that story, but as the but because the Exodus is the central story of the Old Testament, it really is the central point. The central point of this story is the central point of the whole text of the yeah. whole library, I should yeah. say. So we're going to leave everybody hanging now while we we build up to that point, right? <laughs> yeah. So as the story starts off here, the the Lord is talking to Abraham, and he he gives him a promise of what's going to happen. And the I'm reading from the NRSV to discuss this because there was some good commentary on it, and um, the the translation uh, really spoke to me a little bit better this time than the King James version of this story did. So, um, can you say why, Ben? You know, um, it's it's probably the word choice in translation um, because it's a more modern translation. A lot of the things that it says, I'm like, oh, you know, like that that word just is is a more modern it's not archaic um use of a word and so as i'm reading through it i'm understanding every word and its context whereas sometimes in the king james uh version you run across a word and you're like i know what that word means but i don't but not i don't know what it means in elizabethan right you know i, I don't or i don't know the context and placement of that word here and so nrsv just does a little better job of our, our modern uh, linguistic understanding of, of approaching that. So yeah, I don't know if this shows up in this, in this reading too, as another reason, but just to remind listeners, the NRSV is also produced from better manuscripts than the King James uh, scholars had access to. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly not opposed to, to reading the King James version of, of the Bible or anything. It's just this time, as I was delving into the story, uh, there, there's a lot of, kind of odd things going on. And so I felt like I needed something that was just felt more linguistically familiar um, to, to kind of navigate that. So uh, here, starting at the beginning, the Lord talks to him, to Abraham and he says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you. 
and curse those that curse you in your and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed so the part that stood out to me this time was that you know the concept the ancient concept of of gods was always that you you make an offering and a sacrifice and then they will do something for you right like there's this there's this exchange quid pro quo yeah the quid pro quo and and there is that here with with abraham like at least that's that's his understanding of God from the start out, right? He does these sacrifices and these altars all the time, you know, asking God for these things. But God offers something here that's like a level up, right? And it's not just, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, but I'm going to make you a blessing to other people and not just other people, but everyone, right? And so like the the Lord's saying, okay, not only going to bless you, Abraham, but I'm going to give you responsibilities, and there's responsibilities are that whatever I bless you with, you're to take that to other people. And in, in the Pearl of Great Price chapters, this becomes conceptualized of as priesthood, right? This is Abraham's responsibility to bless his family and everyone else. And that becomes sort of conceptualized as the concept of priesthood. Isn't that interesting? That that goes back to your idea earlier of translating a la Joseph Smith, right? Uh-huh. J- Joseph Smith translates this concept into the mode that he's developing theologically, as you pointed out earlier, uh, of the priesthood. Yeah, 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 and it and it fits well even with later developments that he gets into, you know, with DNC one twenty one of what the the priesthood really is and how it functions. Fits also with our our discussion a couple weeks ago about um, the, in the Book of Moses where it talks about the priesthood being the idea that you you teach your children true principles and you teach them in in that righteous way right and so this this is right. your passing on not just the blessings but also the the responsibility to bless others right yes um so it's not that just that you provide for your children but you also make them providers um so you're perpetuating that idea that's a really good point um, then Abraham goes on his journey and he's, as he's moving through, he's constantly building altars, right. And making sacrifices to the Lord. This is, this is, goes back to, I mean, the, the previous person in the Bible to build altars, an altar was Noah. And so Abraham is following in that tradition. Again, he sees himself as the, the heir of the, the patriarch order of, of Noah. And so he's building these altars and making sacrifices to the Lord or in, in evoking the name of the Lord. And once again, Ben, we see that even though we think of Adam as the first prophet and we think of Adam as the first one to build an altar and, and, and offer sacrifices, as we pointed out last week, in the Bible, the first mention of the building of an altar is Noah. Yeah. And so here we are again in this in this prophetic pattern that we project backwards, and yet this is... The, this is Again, Abraham's the first one really showing up in this prophetic pattern. Before him, Noah's the first one showing up and in, in building an altar. And yet all of this gets projected backward to Adam. Right, right. So Abra- there's this journey that Abraham is taking um, and, again, building altars along the way. And there's this phrase here, verse 9. Um, it says, and Abram journeyed on by stages toward the Negev. So when you're traveling in so he's traveling in what we call the fertile crescent along the the rivers of of Tigris and Euphrates um he's going sort of north northwest direction this would be the way you have to travel because 
if you go south, it's all desert. There's there's no way to get through that way. The way that you traveled through this was to go north northwest direction along the rivers, following the Fertile Crescent. There were people that passed along that way, but the but the again the general route was to go north. That's where that's where you go through Palmyra, right in in what modern day Syria. And that was the the route. The oases were there, and so forth. I've been there, uh, there, and and in that oasis in Palmyra. Yeah, it's beautiful, and it is really is this just you know there's just desert, and there's just not nothing, and of course there's this ancient uh, ruin, Roman ruin of Palmyra, next to right next to the oasis. Yeah, it's only it's only crazy people like Lawrence of Arabia who yeah. go through the desert, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he goes through stages. You 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 take you you jump from oasis to oasis as you're traveling through this this part here, and he's, so he's going to follow in the the you know most fertile parts or the you know the parts that he can. And find provisions most easily. You know, it occurs to me, Ben, that that actually points toward where we're going with this, doesn't it? Actually, yeah. again, we're keeping the listener in suspense, but this going from from oasis to oasis, this looking for water, uh-huh. right in this in this um, exile, right, it gets to the central point that we're driving at. Yeah, and and what's interesting here is that he. He does all of this and he arrives at his promised land, the land that the Lord is going to show him, right? That this is where he's supposed to be. This is the land of Canaan. Well, remember in their tradition, the Canaanites um, were the the wicked, right? These are the, the wicked people. These are the idolatrous people. These are the violent people are the Canaanites. And so the you know the lord is leading him into the land where there's like the most violent people and he gets there and not only is it the most violent people again this is the tradition this isn't necessarily objectively the case um and not only are they the most violent people but there's a famine in the land right so like this is supposed to be his promised land and all of a sudden he gets there and there's there's no food it's famine right well, and where is he coming from? This is interesting because why did he leave the land of his father? It was idolatrous and violent. And where? what's the promised land? This idolatrous and violent place. Right. With a famine. Right. To boot. <laughs> With a famine. Exactly. A bonus. That's, the bo- that's what makes it the promised land. It has a famine. <laughs> well, again, you know, it's the, it's the call to adventure. It's the call in the wilderness. But, you know, so he gets there. It, uh, you know, you were talking about going from, you know, searching for water he gets there and here it says, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien for the famine was severe in the land. If we go to the book of, of Abraham, Pearl Great Price, and we go to that part where he gets to, uh, is, is going to go into Egypt. I'm going to read the verses here. It says, and I, Abraham, you know, it, it, I'm just gonna make a quick note here in the, um, in the Pearl Great Price, it always refers to him as Abraham. But at least at this point in the story, his name actually isn't Abraham. But Joseph Smith writes him as Abraham because that's who we know him as, right? We don't we don't talk about Abram. We always just talk about Abraham. So Right, we've been doing the same thing. Yeah. But in the Bible, his name isn't Abraham yet. <laughs> I, Abraham, arose from the place of the altar which I had built unto the Lord, again, another altar, and removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel. And pitched my tent there, Bethel on the west and high on the east. And there I built another altar unto the Lord and called again upon the name of the Lord. 
Okay. So as he's traveling, there's also these moments of ascent, right? So he, he builds an altar and then he goes up on a mountain, builds another altar. Um, so he's, he's, he's raising his ideal, his, his, um, his goal, so to speak, goal is probably not the right word, but this ideal that he's striving towards, um, is, is metaphorically being raised all the time, going up on the mountain, trying to, to get closer to God and, and, oh, well, you know, my sacrifice didn't work here. So maybe if I go up on a mountain, it'll work better. You know, I'll be closer to God. And he ultimately has, uh, reaches that vision in yeah. chapter three. Exactly. Yeah, this yeah. is precursor to that vision. Which is why we have to end there, even though we've already covered it. But there's a descent, though, because what happens is he does that. It says, called upon the name of the Lord, and I, Abraham, journeyed going on still towards the south. So now, now he's going down into the land of Canaan, right? And there was a continuation of a famine in the land. And I, Abraham, concluded to go down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine became very grievous. So, Ben, to be clear, you're saying that the descent precedes the ascent, right? In the in the in the pattern that we've seen before, right? Well, it's actually kind of uh, yes. Well, and ascents precede descents, so it's actually there's there's up and down going here all the time. Okay, so you're not saying that there's a a catabasis a, a going down before the going up necessarily. There is. Okay, I didn't talk about that part yet. I will have to go back to that just because. I'm following kind of the Bible narrative and then pulling okay. the prograde price ones, but we'll have to go back to that part where he actually his lowest low, right? Right. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. That there usually is a, a descent before the ascent. Correct. Yeah. The catabasis precedes the anabasis, but we don't get that in the text in this order, but we can still bring that in. Yeah. 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 Well, I'll, I'll bring it in a bit because it's in chapter one of, of Abraham. It, you just don't really see it in the in exactly the same way in the in the Bible narrative. So what's interesting to me though about this part here is that again God has has told him I'm going to bring you into Canaan. This is going to be your promise promised land, and he gets there and decides this isn't good enough. I'm just going to go to Egypt. <laughs> right? God doesn't tell him to go to Egypt, but he goes to Egypt, and and God's like, okay, you know, you weren't quite ready for that, so you're into Egypt. This is all foreshadowing the children of Israel. The Exodus story. Yeah. Going into Egypt because of a famine, right? So this is exactly the story of, of Joseph going into Egypt and then um, you know him bringing all his brothers and then them being in Egypt for the, what do the scriptures say, 400 years um, because of the famine. That's why they went there to begin with. So Abraham goes down into Egypt and then comes back out of Egypt in in a very foreshadowing way, right? So we have this thing going on with uh, with Sarah and and the Pharaoh, and there's some odd things going on there. Abraham in the Bible story seems to be lying about um, Sarah being his sister, but then later we find out well she is his half sister, um, and it's something that that he just decides to do in the Bible account, but in the Pearl Great Price account, the Lord tells him to do it. Right, and either way you either way you cut it, he makes what he says, you know, whether of his own volition or whether uh, at the Lord's instruction, makes his wife available to be a wife to Pharaoh. Yeah, and when Pharaoh finds out about it, he doesn't think that 
Abraham should have lied. He doesn't get the joke. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and he, he says, you know what, just take your wife back and go away. <laughs> and he gives him lots of gifts too, including, uh, um, at least in the Islamic tradition, Hajar. Uh, Hagar becomes, uh, she's she's a, a daughter of the Pharaoh, isn't she? Um, well, she's she's a princess of some sort, but it's... I don't remember whether it says she's daughter of Pharaoh. Like she's she's royal. That's right. She's a, a, an Egyptian princess, and the gift of Pharaoh to Abraham among many gifts that he, he yeah. gives to Abraham. Yeah, but but again, you know what's interesting about this is that he going into Egypt again. It's this this all this foreshadowing of the the Exodus story, and so. Um, you could take it from once and, and say, well, this actually happened to Abraham and um, how it actually happened to Abraham isn't clear. But we could definitely say that one of the possibilities is that, again, when this story was was written down, one of the ways to legitimize the Exodus story was to couch it in these this foreshadowing um, prototype or archetype of the Exodus narrative saying, Look, this is what happened to Abraham. It's also happening to us as a people. Um, and so that, that's kind of how you, you legitimize that. And there are multiple senses, Ben, in which we can see the story of Abraham as prototypical for all of us mm. in many different ways. Yes. And this is the, you know, I think this is the Jungian interpretation, right, is that that Abraham, the story of Abraham, is a story of us answering a higher call, right, and 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 progressing as a people, you know, as as individuals and as and as uh, people. Yeah, in broad strokes. Yeah. Well, I, like it says in in here that Abraham journeyed on by stages, you know, like from one place to another. Right. As we do in our lives. You mentioned the hero's journey. The hero's journey really is the story of our lives. We're the hero. And in every case, we're each a hero and we each go through those stages. And by the way, we're referring to uh, the, the work of Joseph Campbell, right? The monomyth, he called Here it. with a thousand faces. Uh, he, yeah. That's the book in which it was detailed. Um, there is a book which is actually a, a biography of Joseph Campbell called The Hero's Journey. So really, if you're looking to read about The Hero's Journey, you read The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Yeah. The story of, of Abraham, we're going to rewind a little bit here because in, in the book of Abraham, we get the story of, of actually what happens before he goes on this journey. And one of the things that happens is that he gets taken by these... Uh, pagan priests, these polytheistic priests, and um, offered as a sacrifice, or he's about to be offered as a sacrifice. So they put him on the altar, and they're going to kill him and offer him as a sacrifice. And here we get verse 15, and as they lifted up their hands upon me, that they might offer me up and take away my life, behold, I lifted up my voice unto the Lord my God, and the Lord hearkened and heard and filled me with the vision of the Almighty. And the angel of his presence stood by me and immediately unloosed my bands. And his voice was unto me, Abraham, Abraham, behold, my name is Jehovah, and I have heard thee and have come down to deliver thee, to take thee away from thy father's house and from all thy kinsfolk into a strange land, which thou knowest not of. Okay, so when we talked about um, 
the this motif of the the vision of of Satan and then the ascension to the the theophany well, is there a word for you know there's theophany is there a word for a vision of Satan I don't know well it's it's coming it's it's certainly coming to terms with our own shadow right yeah but but you're talking about a catabasis for sure right yeah. this is a, yeah. a descent and and it's always preceding the ascent just as in you know well in the entire divine comedy or in particular uh-huh. in in canto 2 of the inferno we see it in the odyssey in book 11 in the aeneid book 6 in the story of isis and and osiris uh-huh. or yeah right isis and osiris over and over Horus, in ancient yeah. uh, texts yeah yeah so there's there's the descent here and and we've identified it multiple times um in in our discussions in the in these podcasts um, right. we saw it in third nephi we see it in alma 36 we see it in moses chapter 1 we see it in moses chapter 7 where uh, enoch has the vision of satan and then and then the vision of god and so this is returning and i hadn't until this time identified this as abraham's uh you know equivalent moment. yeah yeah and another example is the first vision yes exactly yeah there's another one so this is abraham's you know encounter with a a, a threat on his life by a, a power of a, of another god right and we can call this this a satanic encounter movement moment so to speak for for abraham and i think it, it fits the pattern at least here even if you know the the particular mechanics aren't exactly the same but he prays and and god comes to him and delivers him right so just like all those other um examples that we uh outlined ben it occurs to me that psychologically he's dealing with fear mm-hmm. right yeah, and that's something that he has to come to terms with and overcome. Which, of course, is over, a fear is overcome by love, mm. and so it's the love of God that takes us out of fear into a theophany. From oh, I know what you call it. You were asking what to call the opposite yeah. of theophany. It's called hell. Yes, it's an experience <laughs> of hell, right? It's being sure. in hell. Sure, the bitterness of hell. In fact, uh, the bitterness of hell. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So the, the bitterness of hell. So that's. That's part of one of the descriptions as well. In, in Moses chapter one, when Satan stamps right. and you know Moses sees the bitterness of hell, and, and so there's another there's example. That. Yeah, it, it, you know, you you brought up that this is fear that he's dealing with. In fact, th- this can be shown. You know, this story as is a journey, um, katabasis and abasis of fear and faith that Abraham is traveling through up and down, right. And here he's going into Egypt. And, and in fact, the whole story of him going into Egypt is, is marked by fear. Like he's afraid of what Pharaoh's going to do or what the Egyptians are going to do. And so then, you know, he concocts this, this story about who Sarah is. So, Ben, I remember, I don't remember details, but I remember in Jordan Peterson's lecture series on the Bible – giving you know this uh, a psychological psychological interpretation Jungian as he's a Jungian psychologist that he mentions going to Egypt as sort of the equivalent of going south today and I don't mean by that that Abraham is going south although he is it's interesting to note too that again in a Joseph Smith translation of you know an ancient story 
you're going to have maybe these cardinal points that that I remember you mentioning in a verse you read, east and west, and yeah, he says he's going south up. to Egypt. Yeah, but this right, but this isn't something that that occurs in the Bible necessarily. In fact, the King James Bible does have south, but the NRSV doesn't. Oh, I didn't check the King James uh, use of the word here, but the NRSV says down. Down, right? Says exactly. down. Yeah, which you know in the ancient context was wasn't uh wasn't used in in north south east west concept it was a it was just a, a description of elevation you know like right and so if we take egypt in this sense um which really it doesn't work for the example but but just in egypt they called upper egypt was actually the south because that was higher elevation than lower egypt which is the north because the nile flows you know south to north so but here we do have abraham going down uh-huh. he's going south yeah as, as joseph well Smith in the, and the capital of egypt remember is is historically in memphis which is right. is the the delta that's the north part of egypt so that's and the, that would be that's the lowest elevation so you're you are going down even in that sense um to to egypt um and and yeah there might be something psychologically to the idea that that there is a dis, you know, a descent here rather than what God commanded him to go, you know, to Canaan. And, and then, you know, he's, he's not, um, he's not living up to his own understood highest ideal, right? He's, he's right, falling short right. of that. And that's what this story is all about. Yeah. Is, is each, each of us reaching for a higher ideal. So I don't think geographically, I don't think he's, even though Memphis is in Lower Egypt, he's not traveling from Upper Egypt to Lower Egypt. He's traveling from Correct. the Fertile Fresen, from the the Shem, right? The uh, down to Egypt, yeah. And so I think we can see a catabasis there too in his trip down to Egypt. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Yeah, yeah. I give the example of Upper and Lower Egypt just as the ancient mindset of what Upper and Lower and going up and down meant, you know. And and we we have our maps. That are oriented north and south, and so we talk about up and down, but that wasn't that wasn't what up and down meant to them. So they didn't orient maps north and south necessarily. Right. So, so yeah, moving on in in the story, you know, he comes in and and the the thing with with Pharaoh and uh, it, this is this is where we get more allusions to the Exodus story because it says here and 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 one of so I'll, I'll read verse seventeen. Sorry. Chapter 12, verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now, um, it doesn't say anything about what these plagues were, but it uses the word plagues, which is the same word that's used in Exodus, right? It doesn't say anything about what they are. And so to me, this is almost like just a total homage to Exodus to, to foreshadow it, or even like maybe it's written in after the fact as a, a, a legitimizing detail of this is why Abraham left because Pharaoh was plagued, just like why we left Egypt because Pharaoh was plagued, you know? Yeah, and the and the plague is coming from, in one case, Abraham, in the other case, Moses. Yeah. It's interesting because to me, all of that, without disagreeing with anything we've said so far, just as another point, as an aside, the plague is it's really caused by the lie right it's it's the plague is to have taken it it just seems like you know he takes abraham's wife to be his wife and that just brings in some sense a plague upon him Mm. and that's when he says 
why did you tell me she was your sister? This is your wife. Take your wife back and get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. You, 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 all you did was bring problems. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I could say there's, I, I guess I, I'm not saying this didn't happen this way. I just think that the way that it's structured is so close to Exodus that um, certainly one possibility is that this is written in after the fact. Um, but there's no there's no reason that we can't say, well, history's repeating itself because that is yeah. what happens. You know, history repeats itself. That's sort of what the Quran is implying, you know, that, that the, it's not implying, it's pointing out. It really is pointing out explicitly that the story as, of Abraham as it's written comes later than mm-hmm. what was Abraham, right? Yeah. But yeah, and, and of course the Exodus, again, is the central story of the Bible and its main point is the one we're still holding in suspense here that yeah. we're getting to. <laughs> so after leaving Egypt, they come back up to Canaan. And finally, this is, they're going to inherit the land that, that God is, is going to show them. And he's there with lot, right? We, we know this story and they, they're all in one place. They feel like, Hey, you know, it's not, we can't really spread out and, and do our, our nomadic thing here together so we need to kind of designate some different parts of the land for each of us so he lets lot choose lot chooses what to him seems like the more watered fertile part in fact here's an allusion to the garden here because it talks about well watered which is what eden means and so so lot chooses what uh, what appears to be the the more fertile you know, productive, the better land, right? What appears Edenic. Yeah, yeah. And Abraham is content with choosing what is apparently the 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 lesser land or the worst land because he prioritizes peace and minimizing the contention. And this is where um, it, it there's this interesting idea here out of the book of Abraham, that one of his aspirations was to become a prince of peace, right? That was one of the things that, one of these ideals that he aspired to was to be a prince of peace, which at at the time in this ancient mindset, that was not at all a common aspiration, right? Like the aspiration was you become a king and you conquer the most people and you chop the most heads off. And that's how you, you know, that is... That's, that's greatness. That's the top of the totem pole, right? You are, you're the, you're the best if you can do that. Well, that's what makes you a prince, period. Yeah, exactly. That's the defining characteristic. So for Abraham to aspire to being a prince of peace and then even actually play it out in saying, I'll take the worst land to reduce that contention, um, it's, it's not a sign of weakness, but it is a sign of meekness, right? And so there's there's a lot of beatitudinal stuff going on here with with Abraham as he's moving through this this understanding of trust. Yeah, it makes him a Christ figure in some sense. So another thing, Ben, uh, that we sort of glossed over, picking up on the theme of the hero's journey again, when Abraham doesn't go to, when he rejects Canaan and goes to Egypt, this is the refusal of the call. So he had his call, as you mentioned, to adventure. He refuses yeah. the call. The Jonah. But then he right? does go, <laughs> right, yeah. So then he does end up in the end in Canaan. And of course, our hero usually ends up master of two worlds, you know, having gone down as, you know, in the catabasis and, you know, dealt with that, with a, with a special world. He returns home with a boon, 
for his people, right? And and so I think that's where the story's going, right? That's usually how it goes. Yeah, and and this is where in context, if we if we were going to talk about Abraham chapters 3, 4 and 5, particularly 3, it makes sense cuz he goes down into Egypt and and th- what seems to be going on here is that you know, even though he's kind of overshot, right? This is in the the ancient context, ancient uh, mindset would be sin, right? He's he's hamartia. He's missed the mark, right? He's right. overshot the target, his highest ideal, but he's still stayed within the covenant of God, right? Like he's he's still he's still uh, building altars or, or whatever. Like he's still praying to God, and so then we get this chapter three of Abraham, which is an in the, it makes a lot more sense in this context that he's gone down into Egypt. Um, and then God gives him a vision and says, Abraham, you didn't get it. Let me let me teach you really what you know your potential is and your calling is. And so then he gets the whole, you know, vision, and then we get the uh the creation narrative, right? So this is the why, 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 why type of thing, him going back to explain in fact we go all the way back to he has a this pre-mortal vision right right and so that then abraham like within the context of the the pearl of great price abraham then gets it right like he's had this vision he understands he has a greater understanding of the character of god and his purposes um what moses would call work and glory right and so then he comes out of egypt right yeah so there's the boon right and there there's the the arc of the whole story uh, thank you, Ben, for bringing, you know, putting the story back in the right order, <laughs> right? And and so you get the whole arc of the story, you get the boon, you get that he now is master of both worlds, right? The the special world and the ordinary world. And so that's the whole story. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad you, you talked about chapters three, four, and five in that way. And again, we'll probably still come back to three and end there. Yeah. We have these, uh, these battles that happen, uh, you know, again, a lot has has gone to the part that he thinks is better. It, it There's a mention of him pitching his tent towards Sodom. Um, it, it also mentions that that Sodom, um, they were great sinners. Um, and we, we might talk again about the word sin here because in the ancient context, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a uh, point of objective morality. What we're talking about here is, again, that hamartia, that missing the mark. It's it's the falling short of your own understood ideal, right? Like doing things you know are wrong, not not some like objective cosmic morality that you are messing up on, but things that you know psychologically um, are wrong. And so that's what what sin is. And in fact, in, in the Latter Saint tradition, we understand sin this way. Like we don't believe in ignorant sin, right? We we believe that that sin is after you you've understood an ideal and you depart from that right yeah another translation that that is has been given of hamartia which i don't think is really a good translation but i'll mention it it's in aristotle's poetics Mm -hmm. that hamartia is what's typically called the the fatal flaw of the tragic hero so again a hero but in in this case you know the tragic hero the fatal flaw really is just a human flaw Uh. it's you know, it's just, it's it's human to err. Everybody has an Achilles heel. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's one of these, one of these um, mistakes we all make is really what's being called a fatal flaw. It's the same word. 
that's being called fatal flaw. It's hamartia. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a good point. Like it's the 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 universal sin, not in the sense that there's a particular sin that's universal, but the idea that we all sin in some way. We're all falling short of the glory of God, right? Yes, indeed. But that's how that's how in this story God comes out as merciful, right? Like he even though Abraham is falling short of this ideal, God is maintaining his covenant. God has not broken his covenant and never will. And so he's constantly showing Abraham. I won't break my covenant. I promised you these things. I'm going to live by it. You just have to keep entering into this conversation with me. Don't don't leave the conversation, right? Just keep keep the conversation going. So one of the interesting little tidbits that we're going to kind of digress on a little bit here because um, it's one of those things where you you read through it and you're like, I don't know what that means, and you kind of just move on, right? But there is some commentary on this, and it, it, it connects to um, – an idea and topic that, that is important to Christopher uh, particularly, but I think it's also interesting. So I'm going to mention this here. There's there's a part um, where it talks about uh, oaks or uh, trees. This is a reference to trees. So the oak of Moreh. So this is actually a sacred tree. It's a it's an oracle, if you were. It's a part a space of an oracle, and um, you see this this motif of sacred trees elsewhere in Genesis, right? Of of course, we start with um, with the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, but there's other places in the scriptures that trees come up as as sacred trees. You know, in the Book of Mormon, we, we get the tree of life in in Lehi's vision as well. Um, and so we, we've mentioned this a couple podcasts ago, but um, sacred trees played an important role in in the religion of the ancient Israelites. And surrounding peoples, so they they were symbolic in the ancient mindset, and and then became used as symbolism within the Israelite tradition um, to signify certain things as well. Yeah, there's a lot to say on this subject. It is a little bit of a digression here, but again, it's one of these little details that really pops out if you if you if it's something you're aware of and something you've you've uh, learned about or read about. I've I've actually read and thought a lot a great deal about this. And and in some sense, I've only scratched the surface, but I'll just mention a few highlights. So, of course, we have that Moses sees God in a burning bush. Well, the bush is just a small tree, which is, of course, what you would expect in a desert. The trees don't become very large. A lot of the trees, Deborah is associated uh, with, a, because of her association with a tree, is uh, thought of as a prophetess. Right? She's thought of as a prophetess yes. and uh, as, because she's associated with tree. You have... In the Islamic tradition, you have Mary is going, I can't remember where she's, she's going from place to place to have uh, the baby, Jesus, right? And she doesn't make it, and she has the baby on the way, and she's sort of taken care of, and there's a sense in which she communes with and communicates with a date palm, and she gets food and drink and comfort from in her labors, you know, in her travail, in her, in her uh, labor pains, and, and in the birth of uh, Jesus in that way. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the trees associated with prophecy in in that part of the world in the ancient Near East are acacia trees. I don't know. I don't know that much about trees. I mean, again, symbolically having to do with prophecy, maybe a little bit more. I don't know an acacia from an oak, but I know that ayahuasca comes from an acacia. So mm. I, I, there's even <laughs> a sense in which I say half jokingly that you might see a vision like Ezekiel's too if you drank ayahuasca, sure. right? Yeah. So I don't know. So I mentioned that to a friend, and, and he sent me this this event uh, because of what I had, because I had mentioned that. 
that there's this event. So apparently there's this theory of this. It's called the stoned monkey. So it's sort of an evolutionary idea of how somehow psychedelics from trees became a part of the evolutionary process. I don't. That's all huh. I know about it. Just just in, <laughs> from the title. So it's interesting, so right? Google so that. There, <laughs> there certainly is an association again between trees and between prophecy, and and of course there's the cosmic tree, the idea that that the cosmic tree reaches from the sky to the earth, and actually the roots go down to to the center of the earth, this idea, right? Yes. And the tree of life is very much uh, a cosmic tree symbol. And so, you know, and then, of course, Jesus himself is seen uh, hanging on a tree. The Eastern Orthodox uh, Christians saw the, the, the relationship between Jesus on the cross and Jesus as the fruit of the tree of, the, of life. Yes, which is exactly what uh, Lehi saw, which is yes. you know the love of God. That's Jesus. That's the, that's the Christ. Is the love of God, right? And the representation of the love of God, which is the fruit of the tree. And so that's just a few highlights on on the idea of trees associated with prophecy. And then for, on a personal note, I spent a lot of time as a youth. So of course, there's also the first vision again, right? Uh, Joseph Smith's first vision occurs in the woods, and of course, in pagan tradition too, right? There's so much going on. Whether it's um, pagans, witches, I'm thinking, you know, um, early Europe, uh, you know, there's so many different contexts in which you see this. I personally grew up between the eastern seaboard and the tropics down in Venezuela. So Maryland and Venezuela. And I spent a lot of time in the woods and in the tropical rainforest. And I've always had this sense, as a matter of fact, you know, Joseph Smith went to the woods to pray, mm -hmm. to be alone. I find hiking in the woods, uh, more, on more than one occasion, I was brought to my knees mm. by the presence of God among the trees. Yeah. You know, it's just I was brought to my knees and I had to kneel and pray. And I, I've always felt like in, that there's just this, I can feel God's presence. And of course, in nature in general, this is something Riley and I have talked a lot about on our sister podcast on Latter-day Contemplation but especially among trees. And I've always had a sense that the trees are at least attempting to communicate with me. I don't know that I know how to speak their language and that they communicate with each other. And uh, that's me getting a little woo-woo. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that's okay, because that's you. It's just, it's just so real <laughs> for me. It really is. It's something that I've experienced that I can't deny that I don't fully understand. But again, there's an association between trees and prophecy. Well, you know, we talked about last time the different levels of analysis of scripture and, and the highest being the anagogical. And, and I think that one of the, one of the important steps to arrive at that is, is having a symbolic, uh, understanding of things. And, and, and once you've, you've sat with that and, and meditated on it or pondered on it or contemplated it, right? It, it becomes more real so that then when you go out and, and experience it, there's, there's something more mystical and and substantive there to to your internal experience there and so pondering on the, the symbolic sense really is a is a a way of preparing for that experience there so as as sort of a segue if somebody wants to you know understand what chris's experience is and, and talk about you know think about the symbolism and, and what it means to you you know one one sense or very strong connection with trees is is that of the divine feminine you know often trees is a representation of heavenly mother or the concept of the divine feminine when we have 
you, you talk about the tree of life vision. When Nephi sees that, God gives him a vision of Mary and, and talks about the condescension of God, right? And so that right. is a representation of the love of God. And so that's, right. yeah, that, that's all tied together. Um, you talked about Mary, you know, being under the tree as well and giving birth mm-hmm. to Jesus. So there's, there's definitely very strong ties there for that, for that symbolism in the scripture and, and mystically. And so like, I think that there's, there's a way in which pondering and, 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 um, contemplating that concept can, can then lead us to maybe having a, a, a real experience if we were to go and and in a forest or, or nature and, and experience that kind of thing so and of course go for a walk in the woods right yeah you know it's funny ben that it, that this should should have come to me as you go deeper into the the mystical meaning i'm reminded that i actually learned after the fact because i brought this up in conversation with someone who actually works with trees and maybe i googled it or something but it turns out that there's a ted talk out there about how trees, and this is scientific, about how trees actually do communicate with each other huh. and how they are a community and how their roots are interconnected and their branches reach out to each other just as I experienced. So there you go. The oldest living things we know of, or the oldest living things we know of are, are trees. And they're... Oh, yeah. They're, so it's kind of debated on this um, idea, but there is a... There's a single... so. A single identifiable organism, um, as the oldest we know, is as a bristlecone pine that's up in the Rocky Mountains, and it's something like uh, five thousand plus years old. And they know this because they've done the the borings, and and they know how right. old this thing is. The rings, um, so right. it's extremely old. But there, you know, it's hard. It, it depends how you define like. A single organism because there's actually a grove of aspen trees i don't know exactly where it is that are all clones of each other because they uh right. it, it's all come from the same and so they're all it's actually all one root system and it's technically genetically one single organism and they ha- they don't know how old this is um yeah but it's it could be something like eighty thousand years old and wow. so uh, yeah <laughs> One of my hikes uh, here in Utah, I'm in Utah now, is was Brian Head's Peak. There's actually a tree out on the um, what do you call it? You, you hike out on the uh, I don't know on the 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 ridge, and you come to a tree that is two thousand years old. Mm. I mean, Christ was walking the earth when this tree, you know, <laughs> when this tree yeah. was born yeah. here in uh, in Utah. Yeah, yeah, it's things like that that are interesting. And so, you know, when you kind of gather that understanding, um, I think that it it can prepare your mind for for a type of experience like like you had, you know, among among the trees, so to speak. So yeah, there's something more than than meets the eye here for sure. Yeah. So <clears throat> we're gonna come here to the the crux of this chiasmic structure of the Abraham story. And, um, you know, we're going to talk more about Abraham in the next podcast, but, but kind of where it, it meets its climax, so to speak, is the story of Hagar. And so I don't know exactly how I'm supposed to pronounce it. It's Hagar or Hagar or Hagar or 
I, I say Hajar, but that's Arabic. <laughs> that's Arabic. So I think I've always heard Hagar. Hagar is common. Yeah. yeah. Ben, in my family, we always look up to people who mispronounce something because we know they learned it from reading. <laughs> so uh, we admire you for, for learning this from reading. I know. But in the day of Google, I could look up a pronunciation guide, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's not a book. That's Google. Sure. <laughs> we admire you for, for learning it from a book. Yeah. We have the, this promise from God to Abraham as part of the covenant that he's made that he is going to give him posterity, you know, just uh, infinite posterity. You know, he, he compares it to the stars. Who, me? Couldn't be. Yeah. Well, Abraham's already pretty old at this time. And Sarah, too. Right. And so he, God has made him this promise previously, but, you know, kind of in the back of his mind is he might be thinking, I, I don't know how this is going to happen, but, you know. Well, somebody laughs. Who, who is it who laughs? Well, so then, so then he gets a specific pronouncement from the Lord about how this is to come about. Um, but, but before that, um, they're, they're him and, Sariah, or not Sariah, Sarai, she, her name's not Sarah yet until, until later. Abram and Sarai are kind of talking about this, right? And they say, well, we're too old for kids. Or I, Sarai says, I'm too old for kids. I've never been able to have kids. So this isn't really going to work out. How are we going to get you an heir? Well, uh, the, the tradition of the peoples and the ancient uh, cultures if they have a slave, is that the, the slave is, is really an extension of the personhood of the person that, that owns them. It's their property, right? And so if that, if that slave can provide a child, then it's really Sarah's child or Sarai's child in, in the tradition. And so we have this, this slave, Hagar, who in the Islamic tradition is a, is a, gift from the pharaoh right and so she's potentially of of some royal blood or something but she's egyptian in any case that's the idea here is that she is egyptian and that's the key point yeah that's the key point so sarai says okay i can't give you children but one of my slaves can so go and get her pregnant and then she will she will have a child, and that'll be our child because she's my slave. That's the idea here. Well, so Abraham says, okay, we'll do it. And Hagar gets pregnant and has, is, is going to have the baby, but now she kind of gets uppity, right? You know, she's pregnant, and Sarai can't get pregnant. And so the, the, the story here is that Sarai doesn't like uh, Hagar's um Hagar's attitude anymore because now Hagar thinks herself better than Sarai because she's able to get pregnant. Ben, I can't say for sure. There's no way I can say. But I, I have to say at least that it's possible that this is Sarah's experience. Yes. Right? Yes. Right? Yeah. This is her perception. And in fact, that's actually what the text says. The text okay, simply yeah, says sure. that it that Sarah, you know, felt this way about it. Right. And so she's Sarai is is upset about this. She feels like her her slave isn't in her place anymore. She she is kind of elevating herself beyond her, where her place is just because she now is bearing the child of of Abram. And so 
she goes to to Abraham and says, you know, and and complains and actually, you know, like really gets angry with him because of of the situation. And um so then Abram Abram says, you know, she's your slave, whatever you think you need to do. Sarai sends her away or she deals harshly with her and 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 Hagar runs away. Sarai doesn't send her away. So then we get this verse here. So Hagar has has run away and it says the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur and he said, "Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roy. For she said, Have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Okay. So let's dissect this a little bit here. Um, Lots of things going on. The first thing is that we have this Egyptian girl who's being persecuted by Sarai or by the the Hebrews in this sense, right? And so she runs away, she flees out into the wilderness, right? And comes to water and that's where she encounters God or God finds her there. I like that idea is that God finds her, right? God seeks her out and finds her. And this is in a sort of a direct mirror um, to the story of the Exodus, where you have, again, you know, this is a reference to the, the Exodus, where you have the Hebrews who are persecuted by the Egyptians, and they go out into the wilderness, and in the wilderness they find God, right? So these are, these are uh, sort of mirrored stories. You have an Egyptian persecuted by the Hebrews, goes out in the wilderness, finds God or God finds her um, versus the story of Exodus where the Hebrews are persecuted in Egypt and they go out in the wilderness and, and find God or God finds them. And then there's the water. And if I can tell the story from the Islamic perspective, there's something to pick up there too, right? And actually, before I do that, I just want to point out that regardless of which story we tell, the, as you pointed out, there are parallels here between the two stories. Either way, it's the minority that is dealt with unjustly and calls out to God, and God hears the call of the oppressed minority, whether it's Hajar or whether it's the uh, being oppressed by the Israelites or the Israelites being oppressed by the Egyptians. And again, she's Egyptian, so the stories really are sort of mirrors of each other. In the Islamic tradition, uh, she goes off with her son already born, She's actually looking for water. She's come to a place where she can, uh, she does not have water. She cannot give suck. She puts down Ishmael, the baby. By the way, his name means, uh, it has to do with God hearing the cry, actually. God has heard, yeah, Ismail or or Ishmael. And she's running back and forth between two hills. And she actually leaves him at the top of one and can't see him 
when she's in the valley. She goes back back and forth seven times between Safa and Marwa. This is part of this is uh, symbolized or or reenacted in the Hajj in the in the Muslim pilgrimage uh, by every Muslim who makes Hajj or or, or lesser Hajj Umrah, and finds after seven times she comes back and she finds. It is an angel that is said to appear to her. And this is actually what the text says in the Bible, too. In the Islamic tradition, it's the angel Gabriel, the same one who appears to Muhammad to reveal the Quran. And God makes the water come from uh, the rock, or from, I, I, I think I can say from the rock, but it comes from this hill um, at the foot of the baby, of Ishmael. And this is later called... Uh, Zamzam, and it's the the well where again part of the ritual in the Hajj is to is to drink from the water, as uh, as Hajar did. Well, see that mirrors uh, again Moses in the wilderness striking the rock and the water coming out as well, you know, and then and and then Jesus refers to that as as the living waters, um, you know, that's that's the 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 illusion that he makes in order to to teach uh, the point that he's making so so all all very similar motifs of this right. water in the wilderness um idea which in that part of the world you know that's that's the thing <laughs> right i hesitated a little bit when i said uh, that the water comes from the rock i'm thinking of the the point is that god has god makes the water show up it's not already there right? yes for to to take care of his people right he's he hears the cry of the oppressed, and he answers the cry of the oppressed. In this case, um, Hajar's, and and you know, with her son Ishmael. And now, of course, if there's already, if she's finding an oasis, and there's already water there, then there would be trees, even yeah. in the desert, right? Because you're in an oasis. So that's not the story, at least in the Islamic tradition. But again, thinking imaginally, right? An oasis is a place where there's a tree. So where is she having an epiphany? Where is she having a theophany? It's in a place where where there is where there would be in her darkest moment. Trees. Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, she's been cast out. Yeah, that's right. She had her katabasis, and now she has her anabasis. Yeah, yeah. I, this story, this story is so beautiful, and I, and I, it's not something that I've talked about enough. I think in in uh in the scripture you know it's it's i feel like it's glossed over too much but there's there's so much here i mean think about think about how much is countercultural that's happening right here so hagar is a woman first off right like what is a woman doing seeing god right this does not this isn't a common theme in the scriptures for this to happen be written down that a, that a, that that happens right and she's a foreigner. She's other. Yes, that's the other thing. She's an Egyptian, right? Um, and beyond that, she's a slave, right? Right. So all of these things are just like she's not part of the, not ostensibly part of the covenant. She's a woman, and she's a slave. And yet, if I may, she's a princess. Exactly. Least, right. Well, and 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 that's the idea here that we we get at because what's so she's a daughter of God. Uh, she's a daughter of God. Yeah. And and what I, I love this phrase here. She says, You are El Roy. So there's so much in that. Okay, she she names she names God this name. And it's 
what L is the name of God that they had at the time. So like this is pre Yahweh, right? Like they don't have the the Moses has gets the name of of Yahweh, you know, Jehovah, what we might say. Well, I mean, we have two uh, we have two different ways that that God is called in the Bible, right? Uh, Elohim, Yahweh. We have the documentary hypothesis that the different authors use the different yeah. names. We get both names in yes. in the text, right? That's true. Elohim yeah. and and Yahweh, yeah. But at this point, at least El, this is the name of God. That's why we have Ishmael, you know, Israel, all, all these Ls, Bethel, right? That's house of God. So Elroy, this is God. And then the, the verb is is seeing. Um, and the the connotation here is that this is a God who sees or or really what's being said in context here is God sees me. So he hears, yeah, he hears me and he sees me, yeah, in my affliction, yeah, so Hagar here is saying, God sees me, um, and that's just so powerful, and she sees God, yeah and 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 then to boot, right, she says, "Have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him, okay, so how's that even possible so even the n r s v um, commentary on this. So like in Latter-day Saint tradition, we don't really have qualms with saying people see God, right? Because this is, this is our, this is our founding um, story that Joseph Smith saw God. And so we go in the scriptures and we, we see people seeing God all over the place. Um, but in the, in the ancient tradition um, to see, you know, God is something so powerful that, that you can't even look on him, you know, and stay alive. This is the idea. And so, for her to see God, she asked this question. She she can't believe it. Really, you know, have I really seen God and remained alive? Um, so in again in the NRSV common commentary, originally it talks about an angel of the Lord coming, but but the actual um, the actual grammar and and words that are used um, connote it being God Himself that is coming here, um, not just an angel. And now there are different traditions that say different things, but at least in in this account that we have here, the again the subtext, the connotation is that it's God Himself that comes, and Hagar sees God. Of course, God tells us whether it be by His voice or by the voice of His servant, it is the same. If He yeah. sends a messenger, it's His voice. Yeah. Well, and and we we have accounts where an angel comes, and and the person that sees the angel can't really tell. I mean, so. John in Revelation, he sees the angel, he thinks it's Christ, and he bows. The angel says, no, I'm just a servant, right, like you. So there's that glory of God, that presence of God regardless, right? There's going to be right. the presence of God in one way or another. But but again, just like explicitly in the text, that's really what's, what is said here is that she sees God, and she says that she does. Um, so anyway, I just think this is such a, an amazing story that um, – uh, in our tradition, I don't think we talk about enough. And this is this is the crux of the chiasmic structure of the Abraham story here, because from here it turns to Abraham then having the, the all the fulfillments of all these promises that that God has has given him the inheritance of the land, the the birth of of his of his son, and and so forth. So as part of that, what happens is. We we have this covenant that God is is constantly renewing with Abraham or or kind of one upping. You know, once Abraham kind of fulfills 
his part of that covenant or or understands it in a certain way, God comes back to him and either renews it in a sense or or kind of clarifies for Abraham what it really means. So he comes to Abraham and says, you're going to have posterity. And Abraham's like, well, what about Ishmael? And God's like, no, I'm going to give you another son through Sarah and or Sarai. And this is where Abraham laughs. Well, Abraham, does Abraham laugh or is it just Sarai that laughs? Somebody laughs. And yeah. this is how Isaac gets his name. Whereas Ishmael comes from God hears. Uh, here we have, um, uh, he, he laughed, right? Or she laughed. Somebody laughed. Ab- Abram laughs. Yeah, he laughed. So then yeah. um, this is where the name comes. I don't know the Hebrew. Uh, the Haka, right, is the 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 Arabic. To laugh. The Arabic. So Ishaq comes from the Haka. Yeah. If you can hear the similarity, it's it's a sister uh, language with, you know, with uh, Hebrew. Yeah. So we have the symbolism here as part of the covenant, and this is a common thing um, recurring, is a, a giving of a name, right? And and so what God does is is not just give the name, but he changes his name, both Abraham and, and Sarah's name. So from Abram to Abraham, which no longer is just exalted father, but father of a multitude. Right. This is what the addition of this um uh it's not it's not really a, a suffix because it's ha, but I mean in English we, it would be something like a suffix, right? That that ends up meaning a, a multitude. So he's father of a multitude, and then uh Sarai, I didn't catch the meaning of Sarai, but Sarah means princess. So him giving of these names as a sign of the covenant. And of course, we're going to see moving forward uh, the usual theme that we see in the Old Testament where Ishmael is the first son, but he doesn't get the birthright. Isaac, the second son, does. This yeah. becomes, this, this is a theme that will repeat itself throughout the Old Testament. This is a very popular motif. Very popular motif. I mean, actually, this goes, this, this goes back to Adam, right? Because um, you have Cain and Abel. And um, since Abel is killed and Cain, uh, you know, is is outcast, so to speak, then Seth is born and Seth, meaning second, he's the one that inherits the birthright. And so this this recurring thing of the, the second son being the one who inherits uh, the birthright is is all over the place or and, and it's not um, sorry, second isn't exactly correct. It's it's younger in a sense. And so right. actually this happens in the Book of Mormon, right? So because Nephi is the younger brother and he's the one that, that receives the, the birthright. So Same theme. You know, and it goes down all the way down to Christ because you have the, the son of Solomon is a son of David. Hmm. And uh and I and, and I'll have something more about you know to say about that later as we go through the 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 text, right? But then you have that doesn't really work out. He doesn't really look like the son of David we've been waiting for. And so you get um, Jesus as a, as a son of mm. David. Yeah, good point. I hadn't thought about it in that way. So Jacob and Esau, right? So this this keeps happening over and over, this this idea of this second one. So this this changing of the name or giving of a of a new name is this sign of the covenant. This is this should be familiar to us as Latter-day Saints. Um, for names being associated with with covenants here, and so this is this is one of the origins of that. So um, when we go back to uh, the Tower of Babel, right? Remember the people um, they wanted to make a name for themselves, and but in here in in these uh, the stories of the covenant people of the Lord, they're always getting a name. You know, God is giving them their name, 
rather than them taking a name for themselves. This is something God is giving them. Uh, the Lord called his people Zion, right? So this is a name that God gave them because of, of who they were. There's something to this, you know, taking on a new name. And we have, we, we have our own tradition in our temple uh, liturgy. It, it, for those who aren't familiar, you know, often, you know, when people become Christian, they take on a Christian name. Yeah, yeah. And and you'll see, you know, what, uh, converts to Islam who are have Christian names will often take on yes. uh, Muslim names when they convert. Yeah, very common, very common theme. So that that tradition and that idea definitely survives till today, even if yeah. the way that we think about it might be slightly different. But yeah, it's but, a yeah. new identity that you're taking on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in this relationship, right, to God. Then what follows is is a a whole discussion of circumcision, right? So I don't know how much you want to get into this one, so Christopher. I, I, but. <laughs> well, I just think it's it's a mode, right? So there's there's a way that we can yes. that we can signal, right, that we're making a covenant. You know, I think for some reason I think of it in relationship to I don't know if this really works, but I think of the stories where someone shaves their head. You know, it's like okay, and and I did this once, and my my ex wife thought I was crazy. She I I she said that's a crazy person haircut, and I said, honey, you can't say that. You're you're a psychologist. That's just not appropriate for you to say that to me. But you know, she we we um we're going to a wedding, and she came and went, and I said I'll meet you at the wedding, and she saw me with hair, and by the time she saw me at the church, I had no hair, and she thought I had gone nuts, but I had actually. There was something, it was from the Bible story that I, there, there was something that I, I can't remember what it was, but I had made a commitment to myself. Yeah. It's fulfilling of an oath. Mm-hmm. I was turning over a new leaf and I shaved my head as a sign, you know, yeah. uh, that I was doing that. And, and I didn't share that with her. That was private um, in, in a very personal way. Even something I didn't share with my wife it was between me and God. So again, it's this, this is outward sim, uh, sign of an inward commitment. And so it's a mode. We've talked about modes, right? You and Shiloh talked about modes. Yes. Yeah, and so this is a mode, and it could be done in other ways. So uh, a mode would be something, a, a way that we, just a way that we connect with God. I mean, we might call, we in our tradition, we would call it an ordinance, right? But but I don't mean ordinance in, in the like, in, in the strictly ritualistic, like, uh, priesthood ordinance way. I mean, an ordinance in literally anything you do that is uh, that maybe a, a an action that helps you connect with a divine experience. And um, you know, everybody kind of has their own thing. And what what happens is that something, an action or or a ritual, will become meaningful to a person and. Um, because of that, God can manifest himself and his presence within that thing because it's meaningful to you. And so that can happen in, in two different ways as far as I can tell. Maybe there's more. But one of the ways that it can happen is that it's something that we come up with and then God kind of, so to speak, gives his stamp of approval and says – And he might be thinking, this is really strange, guys, but okay. This is strange, but <laughs> if it works for you, it's fine. Uh, you know, I, you can connect with me in any way that works for you. I'm going to, uh, we're going to do it. You know, like my, my little kids will be like, I, I want you, my, my son, he's two years old. He's like, he, he wants to play cars with me. And so dad, come pick, play cars, dad. You know, so 
I'll go and and we'll just drive cars around like like you know and and what's meaningful to me isn't the cars right what's meaningful no. to me is the fact that it's meaningful to him right right and so what's meaningful to god is the fact that it's meaningful to us and so yeah. other times god may give us a mode um in in a revelatory sense um as as a way of us coming into a, a, a greater understanding and one of the examples of this uh, might we bring up a bunch of times would be in Mosiah 18 where where Alma's there at the waters and he says hey baptism you know so like Alma's sort of acting as the revelatory conduit through which uh, God is offering them this mode in which they can connect and 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 experience or commemorate their experience with him and this one makes a little more sense right it, it, there's a burial and a rebirth you know something uh-huh. like that but yeah. this this other you know thing it's just strange and by the way, you know, so I, there's one other thing I wanted to say about this, which is we tend to, you know, I, I think we like to add meaning and find meaning. And, oh, you know, this was uh, avant-garde in some sense because, and it's funny that we say that because we think it's backwards when Africans do it. And it's actually, it's associated with Islam and it really has nothing to do with, with Islam. When, when, we, when it's done to women, it's an African practice, it's whether among Christians cultural. or Muslims. It is, and it occurs among Christians and Muslims equally in Africa, but it yeah. doesn't occur among Muslims outside of Africa, so it has nothing to do with Islam. But we think it's backwards and barbaric, but we think it's perfectly normal to do it to uh, boys, yeah, just not to girls. And we make up that there's some medical benefit to this, and the medical procedure is actually much more controversial than most people realize. Yeah. It's actually, there, I, I've, I've read that more babies die under the knife then have a then have a later health benefit from circumcision, hmm. you know, in circumcision that is they die under the knife in circumcision than have and I don't know, I don't know whether that's just something that stood out in my in my memory when I read about this. But the point is, whatever the case may be, the procedure that is done today is radically different from what was done in, in uh, the ancient Near East. You know, this is we're talking about a small cut versus something. And of course, you know, with a blunt instrument versus a surgical instrument for women who have had, uh, and it's very common because doctors, for doctor convenience, not so much for for the women, but for the the men who want to get the thing over with or do it on their own timetable instead of waiting for nature to take its course, women are cut surgically in what's called an episiotomy. And this is very difficult to heal because the cut is so surgical, right? Whereas if yeah. you tear, which is the normal uh, thing that happens when a woman has a baby, then there are jagged edges that can come together and heal. And when you're using a blunter instrument like a rock, it's the same thing, right? Hmm. All that to say, we, we tend to just add all this meaning to these things, which may have nothing to do with the, the, the point. Yeah, I mean, if it's not, the meaning is found subjectively. And so, you know, and, and one of the reasons that we can we can maybe speculate would be the right word the the meaning of it to the ancient peoples is that um you know we didn't talk about it we we kind of skipped over the part of the sacrifice where abraham takes the the animals and he cuts them in two right and spreads them and then and walks between so this cutting is cutting a covenant cutting a covenant so this is this is an ancient custom that that predated um, you know, Abraham, probably even Abraham's conception or, or revelation of who of who God was, right? And this is a, a common if you practice will. in the area. And so, 
Abraham does this as a mode, right? He does this because it's meaningful to him within his culture, and God condescends to it to accept it as a mode of of experiencing him. And the way that uh, Abraham knows this is that Abraham does it, and then he waits all night until he sees a, a light pass through the middle of these things. And when you read this story, like to our our modern um, mindset, like it makes no sense. It's so bizarre. But when you realize that this is actually a very common practice for people to do, it, it's the symbol of a covenant. In fact, when you between went people, to even. another person, yeah, between people, when you went to another person and you made a deal, you know, a handshake, so to speak, one of the things you do is you cut an animal in half and you both, both walk through the middle of it. And the symbolism is that um, if you break your promise to the other person, may you be divided into like this animal is, right? Like, so you're, you're promising your life on, on this covenant. And so Abraham does this and he cuts it in two so that the verb in, in Hebrew is to cut a covenant, not make a covenant, but to cut a covenant. Then the Lord accepts this as a mode for Abraham um, making, you know, this, this promise. And we, we see this symbolic, the passing of the, the, the smoking pot and then the, the torch between them. And this symbolizes the Lord uh, as walking through, as accepting this, this covenant of Abraham. So fast forward to circumcision, right? This is, this is sort of the same concept that there's, there's this division, this cutting that is associated with the covenant and, and that, you know, the, the Lord would, would accept this as a mode for them. And then in the text, it says the Lord actually gave them this mode. But we know um, historically and archaeologically, this actually existed uh, for, for time before this. This is something that was already culturally happening and being done at the time, even before uh, Abraham. So Right. Just like women veiled themselves before Islam. And has and veiling has nothing to do with Islam in that yeah. sense. So again, you know, this is a pre-existing cultural practice that then gets brought into the religious experience because it's already meaningful for the people. And God says, "Okay, you know, that's great. If this is how you're an experience me, I'm going to manifest myself in this to condescend to you." God always speaks to us in our language. So that's kind of what I had to say about the the concept of circumcision, and I think that. Is actually um, pretty consistent, even with where Paul ends up going with it. You know, in in his letters, um, he doesn't speak about it in exactly those terms, but that's kind of the idea that I think he's getting after: is that hey, this is a mode of experiencing God, and if it works for you, great. If it doesn't work for you, then well, and I think it's really important to point out that in, he doesn't think that people who uh, are, were not Jews, uh, the original Christians, right, are Jews. But if somebody who's a Gentile wants to become a Christian, he doesn't have to circumcise himself. If it doesn't mean anything to him, you know, that, that there's no cultural meaning to that practice to him. He's not, he's not going to experience God through doing that. Then don't do it, you know? Exactly. Like, it's just pain. <laughs> I, think, I think that's actually the end of uh, this reading here, Christopher. What, what other things do you think we need to bring up or, or mention? I can't think of anything else, Ben. I'm just thinking ahead to the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and yeah. next week. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to that next week. We'll talk about what, what really was going on, right? <laughs> I'll just, you know, I, I just end by, by repeating the theme that I think is the central theme, not only of this story, but just as it mirrors that of the Exodus, and that is the central theme of the entire Old Testament, 
is that God hears the call of the oppressed and God answers that call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, then we'll sign off for uh, Latter-day Peace Studies. I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thanks.